Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. Jennifer Lal is founder and president of the Center for Bioethics and Culture Network. Lal's writings have appeared in various publications, including Cambridge University Press, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Dallas Morning News, and the American Journal of Bioethics. As a field expert, she is routinely interviewed on radio and television, including ABC, CBS, PBS, and NPR. She is called upon to speak alongside lawmakers and members of the scientific community, even being invited to speak to members of the European Parliament in Brussels to address issues of egg trafficking. She has three times addressed the United Nations during the Commission on the Status of Women on Egg and Womb Trafficking. And this is my editorial opinion. Jennifer is one of the most effective and prolific critics of radical reproductive technologies and commercial surrogacy. Jennifer, welcome to Humanize. It's so great to be with you, Wesley. Good to see you. Good to talk to you. You too. Um, you know, you started your career, it's interesting, as a pediatric critical care nurse. That's a very tough service. What did you learn during those years that helped you in your present work? Oh, gosh, I, I learned so much. One, I learned that it is really important that parents have as much information as possible because they have to live with decisions they make for their children. You know, parents have to give the, the informed consent since children are minors. And I just remember so many times thinking how gut-wrenching that must be. You know, working mostly in critical care, you're dealing with the sickest of the sick. So parents have to make very quick decisions that they know they have to live with forever. And, and so I just learned how important it was to make sure parents really understood what was going on and what was at stake. You know, that's uh, quite relevant to the issue of uh, transgender children and gender dysphoria with children getting puberty blockers. Are you uh, noticing, and we'll probably talk about this more at, uh, at length uh, later in the interview, but are you noticing or, or sensing that perhaps uh, parents are getting the bums rushed to try to push their children into these transgender interventions? Absolutely. And back to the comparison between critically ill children, these are life and death decisions that often have to be made in, in a moment's notice. Um, on, but the transgender issue, of course, is not critical and life-threatening. And the transgender, the transing of children debate doesn't have the benefit of years and years of data and research. So this is experimental um, 
And it is, it is, you know, or we'll get into the film, but you know, the tagline is what's the rush. Exactly right. There's no, there's no life threatening disease that needs to be treated right away. And the reason you're passionate about this is because we want to treat children as equals and not as experimental fodder. And some of this, uh, seems to me to be human experimentation, this treat, treating of children with gender dysphoria, with puberty blockers, and even with early mastectomies and so forth. And also, these are off-label uses of these uh, hormones and drugs. They have not been approved to stop a normal puberty. These are drugs that have been approved to treat um, pathologies with normal adolescence. So there's a huge difference there. Yeah. And can you imagine being the parent that consents and approves for these kind of experimental therapies, treatments? I use, you know, quotes around therapies and treatments um, only to find out, as we've seen in the detransition movement, regret and lifelong health complications, negative complications. And you have to live with that regret as a parent who agreed and consented to this thinking that you're trusting your doctor who was saying this is the approved new therapy, the way that we treat these children. Scandalous, really. It really is scandalous. It's a moral panic. And and I think that at some point, there are going to be a lot of lawsuits and a lot of trial lawyers getting quite wealthy because doctors are going to be sued for malpractice for having pushed these kinds of interventions when perhaps they were not uh, warranted. Yeah, and we've seen that in the recent cases in the United Kingdom. Um, the highest court ruled in you know, favor of Kara Bell and the other um, parent, Mrs. A, I believe, was her, her given name in the in the court case. Um, and you know, they they've won. And we've seen what's happened. And you've been writing and blogging about, you know, the Swedish hospital and the Finland and you know, the, this no, we're not gonna allow children to block their puberty. We're not gonna allow children to go on cross sex, wrong sex hormones. Um, to transition. Let's take a step back. I first met you when you, uh, before the Center for Bioethics and Culture, when you were thinking of starting a new bioethics center and you reached out to me and we had lunch. I always accept free food. And, um, and, and we, uh, we had a talk and you actually uh, did that. I mean, I've had a lot of people say to me over the years, I'm going to start a bioethics center, but you did that. Why did you feel the need to uh, engage this issue so effectively and so uh, at, in depth that you would actually spend the time to start a new nonprofit organization? Well, nurses are, you know, serious patient advocates. And especially in the case of pediatric nursing, we're not only advocates for patients, but we're advocates for parents. And I just remember being in, you know, I always worked in academic um, university hospitals. So UCSF, UCLA, Children's Hospital in Oakland, you know, where we were just doing the cutting edge kind of stuff. And, you know, I became more and more concerned with, you know, just the, the whole ethics around medicine, science, technology, and you, you deal with that up close and personal with children. You know, when do you remove life support? You know, when do you uh, withdraw treatment or withhold treatment? You know, all those kind of, you know, I worked with this, this physician who did the first um, womb surgery, you know, where he actually removed the baby from the mother's uterus, did the surgery and put the baby back up. So when I kind of got the bioethics bug, if you will, I just sort of switched my advocacy work to running a nonprofit. I just wanted to make sure, again, that the the public had a, a stake in this, all these policies that we're debating. You know, you and I met in the early embryonic stem cell human cloning debates. You know, the public was one of the biggest stakeholders in all of these policies and, and technology developments. And how can we... Um, 
you know, my advocacy work was making sure that the public was really informed so we could have robust public debate and public discussions versus leading it to the experts, the bioethicists, the lawyers, the scientists, um, the insurance providers. So that's how I started the organization. And I just remember, um, because somebody I went to graduate school sent me an article that you'd written back then for the Weekly Standard. And when I Googled you, I thought, well, holy heck, he lives in my town. (laughs) And so I still remember you walking into that Mexican restaurant in, you know, in Oakland in the Montclair Hills, and us having a a lovely lunch and a delightful conversation. And now 20 something years later, here we are just lifelong friends. Yes, it's true. And, and I think it also reflects the fact that you got involved and that uh, I got involved in these issues uh, is um, the importance of bioethics. I think a lot of people think that it's a very arcane, uh, very academic kind of um, discipline, but it's actually, um, it's actually an advocacy movement, in my opinion, that seeks to impose a value system, at least the mainstream view, that I don't believe that most people in the country actually share. Do you, do you agree with me on that? Um, I think most people in the country probably haven't even thought about, yep. you know, what is bioethics and who are these bioethicists? You know, our good mutual friend, Bill Hurlbut at Stanford, loves to say that bioethics is a conversation. You know, in the in the olden days when I got fresh out of nursing school, back in the days when I still had to wear a cap <laughs> uniform, <laughs> I'm dating myself. You know, we had medical ethics and then we moved away from medical ethics because we moved away from that paternalistic doctor knows best, always just do whatever your doctor say. This, so there was this pendulum swing away. Um, and that's when we saw like ethics committees at hospitals now had lawyers sitting on the ethics committee and social workers sitting on the hospital administrator. You know, so it became a conversation, good or bad. Um, I'd like to say that there's still good bioethics people out there. Of course. Just like there's still good physicians out there doing proper medicine. But, um, you know, sadly with, you know, you know, culture of death is upon us. And we're all just one one step away from having a bullseye on our back. The most prominent bioethicists, those that are um, uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, those are published in the Journal of Medical Ethics, uh, the people who teach at Princeton, pe- people who teach at Yale and so forth, tend to have a more utilitarian viewpoint or at least utilitarian-ish uh, I find that incredibly dangerous because it doesn't put the unique value of human life at the center of medicine. Uh, do you agree with me on that? I absolutely do. And, and that is the problem with, you know, when you, you get bioethics, you know, you get which version are you going to get? You know, are you going to get the Edmund Pellegrino, Leon Cass bioethics flavor? Or are you going to get the Peter Singer flavor? You know, and a lot of um, bioethicists are ideologues. Um, pragmatists, you know, so they are going to be looking at the greatest good for the greatest number and cost savings and those kind of things, which corrupts medicine. You know, you can't have those kind of um, ideas in your head. Are we going to save money if we save this patient or treat this patient? Are we going to make money? You know, and that's, you know, gets into my work that I've done in assisted reproduction when medicine just becomes as lucrative, how much money can we make? You know, ethics be damned. approach. Well, that does bring us to the work you're probably best known for, and it's something you've been doing for the last, oh gosh, at least five or six years, and that is being a a critic of big fertility and uh, the entire reproductive 
uh, health industry, if you will, and we're talking about IVF, we're talking about surrogacy and so forth. I, I think um, I was actually shocked when I read how big and rich that industry is. H- how how much money is actually made by um, these kinds of clinics and how, how powerful in terms of political strength uh, is the reproductive industry? Well, it's very rich, it's very powerful, and it's growing. I mean, when you look at places like, you know, the Financial Times and Market Watch, those kind of sites that will, you know, are predicting, you know, by 2024, you know, tens of billions of dollars worldwide. Now, it's hard to get like really breakdowns of those figures. So how much are individual clinics making? How much of that big, you know, billions of dollars is going to big pharma versus fertility, reproductive endocrinologists? Um, but it is a very lucrative and it's a very growing industry. And this, you know, this trans issue of transing adults and children adds to that because there's so much going on in big fertility that's also participating in, in the transgender movement because, you know, the fertility drugs, the hormones are the same. Um, you know, the, the reproductive surgeries that women are having in order to have babies or egg donors or surrogates are having to have babies are similar to surgeries that trans people are having. So it's a it's a booming global multi-billion dollar industry. You know, you've argued quite a bit, and I think uh, accurately, that women are actually being victimized by this industry. I mean, when 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 uh, news reports uh, are shown showing the issue of IVF, you'll see a woman saying, "I will do anything to have a child," and so forth. Uh, and there's a lot of emotionalism uh, that goes into uh, these uh, issues. But you have um, argued very um, steadfastly that, contrary to the popular opinion in the media, at least, that women are actually victimized that uh, and their health is endangered. Let's start with the issue of, quote, egg donation or egg selling. What's the problem for women if they want to donate their eggs or if they choose to sell their eggs? So, yeah, I, I produced two, two documentary films on the harms and the risks to women who sell their eggs. And I had a piece um, recently called Women Are Not Egg Vendors. And of course, the, one of the comments immediately was, you know, a woman chiming in saying how grateful they were for the young woman who sold their, her eggs to them because they now had this cute little baby. Um, so it always starts with that sort of sorry little story of these poor people, you know, and and so the women who are targeted and for eggs, it's almost overwhelmingly women in their 20s because they don't want old egg donors. They don't want young egg, you know, women because they don't, they're not through puberty yet. So it's in that 20-year sweet spot. So in the U.S., it's, it's overwhelmingly preying upon women on university campuses, you know, targeting women with these ads, you know, help somebody make a baby, you know, be an angel, help make dreams come true. There's never any ri- mention of risk. Um, you know, it's an onerous um, procedure that these women go through. They take high-dose hormones in order to make their ovaries swell up and produce lots of eggs. If you're paying a young woman thousands and thousands of dollars, you don't want one egg that she normally would just, you know, ovulate on her own. Um, then she undergoes a surgical procedure with all the risks of surgery and anesthesia in order to retrieve those eggs. And it's not just like sperm donation, which if you let your imagine be your imagination be your guide, <laughs> that's much easier than donating eggs. You know, it's it's big gun drugs, it's big gun drugs given by injection for weeks, and you know, ends with a surgical procedure. And so there's all the short term 
risk of that. You know, I, five of the women in my film, two of them had massive strokes, will never be able to have their children again. Now, your film's you know, name is Exploitation, correct? Exploitation. Um, and then Maggie's story chronicles a uh, one woman who sold her eggs 10 times. She was heavily preyed upon. She was a good producer of eggs. So the fertility agency kept calling her back because they knew that they could get a lot of eggs. And some women respond really aggressively to the drugs. And so like one woman in exploitation produced 60 eggs, six zero in one cycle. And so that's big money for big fertility because then they go on and they can broker those eggs, you know, to multiple people that are buying the eggs. And then the longer term risk, you know, breast cancers. You know, I published one um, study with two of my colleagues in the medical literature. There was a case report of five otherwise healthy women who were egg donors who went on and donated, you know, who donated their eggs and then went on and got breast cancer. And egg donors are screened. We, they don't pick you if you have a history of cancer. They don't pick you if you have a history of breast cancer. So these otherwise healthy women with no history of breast cancer went on as young women, which breast cancer doesn't normally strike young women, to develop breast cancer. Huh. How many women go on and struggle with their own fertility? One woman in exploitation who had a nicked artery and had to be rushed back in for emergency surgery after her eggs were retrieved, went on to struggle with her own fertility, ended up having to have IVF, in vitro fertilization, assisted reproduction, in order to have her children. So the industry not only makes money off you, but then they make money off you being a future patient. You might then need assisted reproduction to have your own children. It's, it's just, it's reckless. It's not medicine. And I, I've read reports, and, and I've written about this as well, that sometimes uh, the women who are, uh, you know, and we'll get into the surrogacy, but the egg donors and, and later the surrogate uh, women, they're not really treated as patients, but they're treated as um, industrial uh, uh, machines that are producing a desired outcome. Yeah. And like, you know, I titled my, my piece a few weeks ago, you know, women are not egg vendors. We're not vending machines. You go in, you pl plug some money into us and, you know, we shoot out some eggs for you. Um, and I refer to these doctors as egg poachers. Um, you know, they're poaching eggs off of women. They're not telling them we've never done the studies. We don't know what's going to happen. You're not going to live in a database like we track organ donors over the, the, their lifetime because we don't really care what happens to you. And if something goes wrong, don't come back here because it's not our fault. So these women who are left kind of, you know, bruised, battered, damaged, harm uh, or dead, egg donors have died. Uh, have no recourse, you know, they can't find attorneys, you, you will know this because there's no precedent, there's no proof because we've never done the study, so you can't prove that the way, reason these women were harmed and suffered was a direct connection to the drugs or the procedure. Um, so, you know, two of the women in exploitation did sue, but of course they settled out of court, which means nobody knows who was at fault, you know. Yeah, they have confidential settlements, which is one of my bugaboos because you bring the lawsuit, and then when you finally prove the wrong, they make you agree to silence in order to get just compensation, which means that other people who might otherwise understand the dangers are not protected. You know, it's a suspicious cycle. There's also suspicious. a eugenics element here because these ads in the college newspapers, they, they're actually aimed at the women who go to the elite universities, and they want women who have certain looks and beauty. Uh, would you comment on that issue? Because it, it strikes me that you, you have um, the beginning of the idea of we wa don't want to just have a baby. We want to have a particular baby. 
Yeah. Well, when I was making exploitation, I had two daughters at UC Berkeley as students, and they would come home with the Daily California with the egg donor ads, you know, offering $100,000 for an elite donor. Two of the women in exploitation were Stanford students. Um, so I remember one time appealing to Stanford's the student paper. I was speaking with the student who was then the editor over the uh, the Stanford paper, asking them to pull the ads because they do target Ivy League, smart, attractive, beautiful women. And I said, why are you as a student-led paper allowing these big fertility agencies to put ads in your paper, you know, risking your student population's you know, female populations help. And he was quite candid. He said, because they pay us so much to run their ads, we wouldn't have a budget to run the, the Stanford student paper. So we're up against the fact that they, the agencies are paying big money to get their ads run in the Ivy Leagues, you know, the prestigious universities. And the students won't work, you know, to protect the female student population because big fertility is writing big checks. So it really does, and that it, and it also engages that they again, it's not an unconditional love for a child. It's actually wanting a particular um, type of child, one that, uh, uh, the, as the old joke goes, looks like uh, Marilyn Monroe and is as smart as Albert Einstein. And the old joke was, well, what if it's the other way around? Although you know that's not fair to Marilyn Monroe, who was not dumb, but uh, that's the gist of the joke. Um, the question also arises in my mind, what these women who sell their eggs or who donate their eggs might think when they're going to have children, biological children, sons and daughters out there uh, who they don't know. Have, have any of, um, in your investigations, ha do, the, do women who are donating their eggs think about that or is that ever discussed in these, uh, these transactions? It, it is discussed, and it's funny because I'm in a couple of like private um, Facebook groups that are ex-former egg donors, and what often happens, I won't say it always happens, what often happens is when the egg donor finally has her own children, if she's able to have children, then she starts, you know, I don't know whether it's her mother instinct that kicks in or her love of her children knowing that they have siblings out there, but it's often at that time that they start to wonder, whatever happened to my eggs? Do I have children out there? Where are they? You know, those are the siblings of, you know, half siblings, if you will, of their, their children that they're raising now. Also grandparents. Um, you know, one of the women in the exploitation, you know, died after being a three times, you know, egg seller. And this is a woman who doesn't have any grandchildren. She lost her, her one daughter that would have perhaps given her grandchildren. So that's another layer to it. it, it the grandparents are affected by this. Um, and, and we know that the kids are just fascinated with DNA testing and 23andMe. And you know, Wendy Kramer has her donor sibling registry where people are putting all their data in her, her registry bank and find, you know matching and finding people. Um, you know, one of the egg donors that I know who was, a, you know, more than one egg, egg donor has already been connected by a mom who has, you know, children through this egg donor's eggs. So it's also the, the people that are raising the children that are now starting to wonder, should I tell my child the truth? Yeah. It's like, you know, if you have an adopted child, you know, this child will never know their medical history on their mother's side. So there's, you know, there's also the parents that have bought eggs or sperm that are trying to. Put the put the pieces back together again. You now, in the adoption issue, uh, adopting parents or adopted uh, 
children and their biological parents have ways to reach out to each other. But that really doesn't exist with the egg donation. And it's really quite the same thing, right? Yeah. And, you know, we, we've done through our laws has not been consistent. So where states have overwhelmingly moved to unseal adoption records to really frown upon closed secret adoption, you know, make those original birth certificates available to the adoptee when they become a certain age and, and they can go down if they want to find out. And then, you know, in other states in the United States, as it relates to third party conception, we've changed our birth certificates. So, they say parent A, parent B, parent C, parent D. You know, if you're a gay couple that used a surrogate mother and you bought eggs, and you know, there's nowhere on those those birth certificates is that woman's name even recorded. So if and when the child born of surrogacy or egg donation or sperm donation wants to go search or find out, they don't even have a, a an original birth certificate. Wow. I mean, these birth certificates are legal documents, aren't they? Not yeah. just fabrication. Yeah, and it's it's. Uh, I'm going to change my legal document to say I'm 25 years old and I weigh 118 pounds. <laughs> it's public record. <laughs> the other issue that you've really uh, tackled very hard, and I think you've actually caught a lot of flack about, is surrogacy. You pose both commercial surrogacy and um, donated surrogacy, but I want to focus on the commercial surrogacy issue. What is the problem with a woman deciding that she's going to allow another couple or family to use her uterus in order to have a baby? Well, this gets back to my my interest in, in medicine and, and risk and healthcare, and we know because um, there's been a couple of studies, and I myself have done one I'll speak to um, that's waiting for publication. A surrogate pregnancy is a much higher risk pregnancy than a, a woman's own pregnancy. And think of it as like organ donation and or, organ donors. You know, I love you, Wesley, but if you needed a kidney, I'd be happy to give you one. However, they'd have to make sure that you're not going to reject my kidney. I just can't give it to you. So we're seeing now when you put foreign embryos in a woman's womb, her body, you know, says, this is not my baby. Mm. And so there's immediately an immune response to that. So oftentimes surrogates are then put on steroids in order to, you know, mitigate the risk of the, the you know, the immune response. Um, so that's a, that's a huge concern is that these are risky pregnancy. And we, you know, my own study, which like I said, isn't published yet. It's in the peer review process. We interviewed 97 gestational surrogates in the United States. They had to have already had their own children. And we took them through an extensive survey comparing all these questions when they were pregnant with their own children and all these questions when they were pregnant with their surrogate. And what we found is that these are still high, high-risk pregnancies. They overwhelmingly have C-sections. The ones who did it for money, we asked them, you know, what was your motivation? Why did you, you know, what did you use the money for? Overwhelmingly, they used it to pay bills and get out of debt. Um, so we, we interviewed people who did it altruistically, but also people who did it commercially. So my, my overwhelming concern is the health risk to mother and baby. And of course, if the mother's in a high-risk pregnancy, that means the baby's also at risk. Um, so there's a lot of preterm labor, preterm delivery, a lot of multiples. Um, you know, you're, this is expensive. You know, people are paying a lot of money. So they're going to do risky things to try to get a baby, you know, brought home from the hospital into those purchase, purchasing parents' arms. <laughs> you, you've got actually two issues that can affect the health of, of the child. One is that uh, I believe there are studies that show that children that were created through IVF 
have uh, poor health outcomes than children naturally conceived. And then secondly, what you just described, which is the surrogacy question. So in a surrogacy pregnancy, you have both, right? Uh, absolutely. And we don't yet, uh, because IVF and vitro fertilization, assisted reproduction, all this high-tech stuff is still relatively new. So we're still not yet able to understand why we're seeing risks in the babies and what, what that is. Is it the technique that we're using in the laboratory? Is it, you know, the fact that we're taking a man and a woman who normally haven't been able to conceive and we're overriding whatever problem they're having and forcing kind of conception. So what's going on there? I don't know. And then, you know, because I did pediatrics for so long, I tell audiences all the time, there's only one thing a newborn baby knows at birth. They know their birth mother. They know their mother. You don't have to teach a newborn baby um, who their mother is. They know her sound. They know her smell. They know the rhythm of her body. Um, and then the trauma between mother and baby when that bond is immediately broken at birth. And most surrogates, when they deliver, those babies are swept away. You know, one of the cases I reported on was a, a, a Caucasian woman who was married to an African-American man who was pregnant for twins for a Chinese couple. And when those twins were born, one was a mixed race baby and one was a Chinese baby. The surrogate did not know this because those babies were removed and whisked away. And it was only three days later that they kind of went, we have to do some testing because these babies, these babies don't look like brothers. <laughs> and it took her six months in California to get her own child back. And it took her a year, again, back to the birth certificates, to have her and her husband's name put on that baby's birth certificate. So for you know, for six months, once she finally got her baby back, she needed to get the court order to take her baby to get his well baby checkup. You know, because you can't bring a baby to the doctors and get care if you're not the parent. Yes, and and you're treating children as a as a commodity, and that gets into quality control and so forth. Uh, I know there have been cases where a child is born, let's say with Down syndrome, uh, where the parents refuse to take the child, uh, and there have also been cases. Um, where uh, the parent, uh, the um, purchasing parents, if you will, uh, wanted the surrogate to have abortions. Uh, can these contracts force surrogates to have abortions? And talk a little bit about the uh, rejected product, if you will, when, uh, when uh, purchasing parents do not take the child that they have uh, um, caused to come into the world through their marketing practices. Yeah, that the the not taking the children and refusing them because they were born, you know, the wrong sex or born with some kind of disability has been quite the scandal. And that actually, that bad news has caused a lot of the global South to just close their borders and this, you know, not allow surrogacy anymore. So you look at India, Thailand, those are countries that have had those kinds of big scandals where babies born with Down syndrome or the wrong sex or with some kind of disability were just abandoned and left. As, as far as the contracts in the United States, you know, the first thing I do when I um, get a call from a surrogate that's had a problem is I ask her to send me her contract. So I have many, many contracts. Most of them have been drafted in, in California. They overwhelmingly contain what we call either fetal reduction or termination clauses. And they're always punitive. You know, if you don't, you know, comply, you'll know this as an attorney, you're a breach of contract. And then it will be, it'll have language about you'll have to pay all the money back. If you decide not to terminate, you will have to keep the child Then you will be responsible for the care of that child that's born with whatever disability. And there's all kinds of other heinous stuff put in these contracts, but that's specifically to 
to your question. Um, now, we have not gotten so barbaric in the United States that we are tying surrogates down and forcing them to terminate pregnancies. The, the two women I'm thinking of both were uh, California surrogates pregnant with triplets, and both of the um, contracts that people wanted them to reduce the pregnancy, not terminate, but reduce. And even though these surrogates had signed these contracts and had agreed to that, when push came to shove, they couldn't do it because there was nothing wrong with the babies. It was just the intended parents, the purchasing parents' wishes. We don't want triplets. One wanted a singleton, one wanted twins. So there was no, they, they, both of these surrogates said if there was a disability or a problem with the child, we would not have had a problem. But just because we don't want this many babies, was they couldn't do it. So we just had to scramble our organization just to get them free pro bono um, legal help. So they ended up having the triplets. But again, back to the fact that the babies are removed right away. They don't know what's become of these children. Were, were the, did the parents keep them together? Did they keep one or two and give one up for adoption? You know, did they, you know, a lot of states have those drop the baby at the door at the police department or the fire department and skedaddle away. So they, they, they live every day wondering what happened to these children that were so desperately wanted. Yeah, until yeah they exactly. Were. Until they were. Uh, there's a couple of other dehumanizing terms. Uh, one you already used, which is fetal reduction. That's actually selective abortion where, uh, as you said, uh, we don't want triplets, so we'll, we'll basically terminate one uh, so that we only have two or terminate two so we only have one. Well, I'm wondering what th the child might think if that child that survives finds out, well, there but for where the forceps went, go I. Uh, the second thing that, that really bothers me is the term gestational carrier. They're not even called surrogate mothers anymore. It's almost like broodmare. Uh, describe the uh, terminology used to um, depict these women who are actually, uh, as you believe, and I tend to agree, uh, being ex uh, sometimes at least exploited because of unequal bargaining positions and also these wealthy people who want what they want, and they've got the attorneys to basically get the kind of contracts that they desire when you might have a woman who's really desperate to make sure the electric bill gets paid. Yeah, the language is really um, quite chilling. You know, it gets, you know, my w women feminist um, hair standing on end. You know, when we first submitted our research um, and we got back the first feedback from peer review, one of the peer reviewers said, because in our, our research, we refer to the women as women. We refer to them as women. Good. The women who... <laughs> And one of the peer reviewers actually said that we were using the outdated term and we needed to switch and start using gestational carrier. <laughs> and so we responded back saying, you know, giving our justification, these are women and we will not reduce them down to gestational carriers. And they are treated horrible. You know, the, one of the women that was pregnant with the triplets, when you look at the specifics of the ass to reduce down to twins, the, the, the surrogate was pregnant with... Um, uh, identical twins. So they were in the same sack. They were boys. And she was pregnant for a singleton, which was a girl. And the intended parents wanted a boy and a girl. So they didn't just want two babies. They wanted a boy and a girl. So they wanted to go in and inject the, you know, the lethal dose of potassium into the heart of one of the little boys. It was in the same sack with his twin brother in order to give them what they wanted, the boy and the girl, which, you know, I just get the, the hairs on my arms to stand up just telling you that story. You know, one of the women, again, a California surrogate, 
her contract in- included end of life decision making waived so that if during the pregnancy she had to be on life support, the people that she was doing the surrogacy for got to decide if and when life support was terminated based on how far along she was in the, in the contract. The surrogate had never once even met these people. So she's basically reduced to nothing more than a uterus as far as the purchasers and the, uh, the reproductive company are concerned. Absolutely. And I think, can I say hell? Sure. <laughs> what the hell are lawyers doing drafting contracts with such horrific language in them where you're asking a woman to surrender her patient doctor, not even her, the surrogate's husband could make the decision to terminate life support on his wife. And, but it was all because it was motivated by money. And you never see this in the media, these kinds of discussions. No. It's never brought up. Uh, the media, uh, in my experience, don't want it. They know what they don't want to know. So they do not get into these issues. And if you, I know you've discussed it with uh, reporters and they never make the story. So there's certain things going on here that there's a narrative that is about, oh, this is compassion. This is helping the, the, you know, the people who can't have children. But what it really is, is helping the upper class because they're the ones who can afford to pay for these children. Yeah. It's always the haves and the have nots. It's, you know, I always say, when have you seen a People magazine cover magazine with Kim Kardashian standing next to her Guatemalan housekeeper and Kim saying, I'm offering to be a surrogate for my housekeeper because she's low income and she can't have a child. Yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs) When would that happen? (laughs) Is exactly right. Um, I read an interesting article of yours. You were responding to uh, a reporter uh, who denigrated or just dismissed some of the material that you had provided him about the difficulty, uh, health difficulties of surrogacy. And, uh, and he said, and he wrote, that means I'm even more uh, supportive of surrogacy because think of how the gifts that these women are giving. And you, you did a, a, a reply called Real Grownups Know No One Has the Right to a Child. And that was published uh, in December of 2018. And uh, you said, wrote this, and I'd like you to comment on this because this is something that I've been thinking about quite a bit, how everything now is based on feelings instead of thought, particularly in these kinds of issues. And here's what you wrote, quote, we have reached a point in the de- this debate where scientific and medical facts about risks and harms no longer matter. If we want something badly enough, it is perfectly acceptable that we allow healthy young women often healthy young mothers with children of their own to care for, to risk their lives in medical procedures benefiting others, close quote. It's about feelings instead of data. And it, it strikes me that when, when we're arguing about feelings, there's no way to actually come up with binding principles because it's all about how I feel today. And, and, and if I change my feelings tomorrow, well, I'll ask that surrogate to get an abortion. Yeah. I, I still remember that. I'm glad I didn't drop an F-bomb because I probably wanted to drop an F-bomb when I replied to him. He was the editor of, I think, the London, the United Kingdom General, Gentleman's Quarterly. <laughs> and they were doing a big piece on surrogacy. It is. It's, it's I want what I want and I've got the money to buy it. So it's a combination of not only just feelings and feeling incomplete. Um, and, you know, the, the fact that this gentleman actually said how much more he even respects these women because they're willing to sacrifice their own lives in order to help somebody else to help somebody who's yeah somebody who's really well off 
Uh, and, yeah. and, and the left is generally kind of looks askance at that, but I, I think in actuality, the ruling elite are very happy to have that kind of exploitation. But this, this brings up something that I think you've been uniquely successful at. You know, we, we're in a society that is so divided, um, uh, between pro-life, pro-choice, between uh, liberal, conservative, and so forth. But on these issues of surrogacy and IVF and exploitation, you have actually been able to craft a very effective coalition that crosses those usual chasms between, let's say, social conservative women who are pro-life and feminists who on the abortion issue uh, support abortion rights but are, are working with you uh, on these issues. How did you manage to accomplish that? Because that's unusual in this day and age. Yeah, I think well, what, what happened is um, – you know the right. The right is wrong on all these issues. Overwhelmingly, the right. The right loves surrogacy. You know, the right loves egg donors. I mean, a lot of surrogates that I meet are church-going, evangelical, Catholic, pro-life women that love babies and love helping people. You know, the left has abandoned their principles. I mean, look at the National Organization for Women and Planned Parenthood. I mean, National Organization of Women. What tweeted a couple of weeks ago that men can be women. (laughs) When you've got now saying men can be women, you go, well, so there is this kind of ragtag tag people right and left, you know, that aren't, you know, lined up with now and Planned Parenthood and aren't lined up with, you know, the pro-life, the religious kind of stuff. And there's quite a lot of those people. We've seen that just recently in like the um, other debates at the, in the trans issue, you know, we've seen right and left kind of coalitions come together. Um, so how was I able to do that? I just, you know, through, the, thank, thankfully, the internet, and you can find people that were, were saying the same things that you agree with. Um, and, you know, early on, we had the hands off our ovaries campaign that was during the stem cell and the cloning, because there was left and right feminist, not feminist women saying, you know, this scientific research of stem cell research depends heavily on women, young women's eggs. You were interviewed in one of my first films when you talked about the vats and vats and vats that we'd need of, you know, all these eggs that would be required for to, to do this research. Um, and, you know, we just agree to disagree on the things that don't really matter. And we've come together to oppose egg poaching and surrogacy, womb rental, and similarly on the trans issue. Agree to disagree on things you can't convince each other about. They may matter, but you're going to uh, just set that aside so you can focus on this particular unified agreement. And and, and be just truly good friends. I mean, I actually have friends that don't agree 100% with everything I agree with. That's just stunning. <laughs> <laughs> Refreshing. You're cr- I'm married to a man who doesn't always agree with me and think I'm right. Uh, well, <laughs> we'll talk to Dan <laughs> off uh, off stage here. Um, <laughs> one of the uh, criticisms I often hear of you is that your work is somehow anti-LGBT. Would you like to address that? Yeah, it's not. My work is pro-people. And, you know, I have many, many lesbian friends who 100% agree with me and stand next to me and say I oppose egg poaching and surrogacy, um, the transing of children. And, you know, I mean, Gary Powell's on our payroll as our European special consultant. He's a very outspoken conservative gay rights leader. He was involved in the early, early, early gay rights movement when he was a student at, at Cambridge. You know, I think he was part of the founding of the first, you know, LGB student group there. So I work quite well with, you know, the only people that 
you know, say that about me are just my haters. And this is they love surrogacy. Yeah, this and they want to make this. They want to say she only doesn't want gay men to have babies. Yeah, yeah. You don't want you, Kanye and Kim Kardashian to have these kind of babies this way. That's right. And and the the problem is the Kim Kardashians are kind of leading the society uh, toward this uh, mechanization, if you will, of procreation. Um, it, it strikes me also that that um, the fact that you've been able to create these coalitions demonstrates that this isn't you trying to push religion as public policy. This is actually an issue of human equality, human rights, and intrinsic human dignity. Yeah, and I've always approached this from you know my years and years and years of working in the hospital. Good medical ethics. What? How do we treat people? You know, in this, in my whole space, everything I, I speak about in, involves interfacing with the medical establishment. You know, that, that there's just things that medicine doesn't do and should never do. So, you know, I just stay in my lane and I wear my, you know, my years and years and years of experience working with, in, with patients in hospitals. Um, and, and, and I don't see women as vendors. I see the egg donor as, you know, a human being that shouldn't be exploited and used as a vendor. And lest anyone think you're sexist and only care about women in that regard, you also produced a film called Anonymous Father's Day, which got into the issue of sperm donation. And and most people, you know, as you mentioned earlier in this interview, you think, well, it's you know, a man d- donates a sperm. It's it's uh, it's he uses his imagination, and then the product is available, and there's no uh, adverse consequences. But you see that quite differently, don't you? Well, yeah, because I see that, you know, we have this thing called a child uh, and a child's best interest. And there's, a you know, again, the beauty of the growing Internet movement, these donor conceived young men and women are growing up and speaking out that, you know, that they were given a a raw deal um, because they don't have access to who where they came from and that kind of information. And they don't like knowing that they are a a commercial product. You know, that somebody flipped through a catalog and said, oh, he's cute. He's handsome. He plays basketball. He's, you know, good looking. Um, and, and that is an issue where I'm still trying to navigate coalitions. So I even actually put a Twitter poll up the other day, just asking like my radical feminist friends, because some of the radical feminists haven't connected the issue of sperm donation. They're absolutely connecting the dots on surrogacy and, and egg donation because of the risks and the harms to the wi- the women. But um, they kind of go, well, yeah, sperm donation, that's okay. Uh, because they're not focusing on, on the child that's being born of that. Did, did you come across any of the sperm donors who became upset that they didn't know the children that they had produced? Yeah, right after we released Anonymous Father's Day, within days, I got an email from a, a gentleman who said, I, I'm a donor. And then he said, I'm not that kind of a donor because you run a nonprofit. You think he's going to write you a big fat check. <laughs> <laughs> and so he wanted to make sure right up front that I knew he wasn't a financial donor. And he told me that he had gone to medical school at Baylor. And it was just a, a given that he said every few weeks I would show up at my my lab bench in, in the, the lab and there would be a specimen cup and I was just told that you're part of your sperm, you know, you're donating sperm. And he wanted me to know that he felt horrible about that and that he'd already put his, you know, DNA out there on the different um, databases so that, you know, he's told, he told his wife, he told his now, you know, young adult children 
you know, during medical school, I was a sperm donor and I put my DNA out there. And he said, every single time he opens up his inbox and he sees an email from a name he doesn't recognize, he wonders, is this the time that somebody finally found, finds me? Um, so yeah, there's a lot, there's another man that was a sperm donor for two lesbian friends. Very close. They, he said, yeah, I love you guys. Well, you know, and then as soon as the baby came, they didn't want anything to do with them. And, you know, in his mind, he was going to be, you know, involved in the child's life, you know, wouldn't live with them, but, you know, just continue the friendship that he had with these two women that he helped become moms. And he's very upset about that. You're, uh, we're getting close to the end, but I, I would uh, be remiss if I didn't get into your current film, Transmission. Uh, describe what that's about and how people can watch it. Transmission is just a real deep dive into the debate around allowing children to medically and surgically transition. You know, I got, I kind of got into this film through assisted reproduction. I found that men were having babies. Then I found out that trans men and trans women were having babies. And then now trans women who are really biological men are asking for uterine transplants so they can have babies. And then I found out that children are offered fertility preservation before they transition. So before a little girl decides to be a little boy, she can freeze and bank her eggs or a little boy can freeze and bank his sperm. So once he's a trans woman can use his own sperm to have children. And I said, whoa, that's it. We're, so we interviewed 17 people. We interviewed two detransitioners that talked about this didn't solve any of my problems. We interviewed medical experts who are in favor of this. Um, and, and against this, and quite a few parents, and then a few activists and academics who were, you know, canceled for being outspoken in the trans debate. It's free to watch on our YouTube channel, the Center for Bioethics and Network. We have a YouTube channel. All the films that we've talked about are now free on our YouTube channel. Um, and we're just, you know, hoping that we, again, will participate in the discussion and give people the tools to ask the important questions. What's the rush to reassign gender? Center for Bioethics and Culture Network YouTube, and uh, people can watch all of your films for free. Uh, and I, I, uh, I've seen them. I've endorsed. I endorsed Transmission because it was a, uh, a truly clear-eyed look at at the current moment uh, in on that particular issue, which I think it, we're in the middle of a moral panic, and I think children are the victims of this moral panic. And I think unless we uh, begin to have a little cool, fewer, cooler heads and fewer rushes to uh, to affirm, you know, gender affirmation. You're you're going to end up hurting a lot of children, and then years from now, they're going to regret it profoundly and very deeply. Yeah, and I don't want that to happen. I don't want to be one of those people that sat on the sidelines and just watched it happen. I just I, I had to speak out, and the way I most like to speak out is through my filmmaking, telling stories. And I do know one thing about you, Jennifer, is that you're never static. So I know you're planning your next move. What's next for the CBC? I, you know, because I got a couple of ideas I'm noodling with. Okay, well. I got a couple of ideas. Well, have you. You know, you know I'd, I'd like to bring back some of the women in my films and sort of about where are they now, you know, and see what what's happened to them. I am really interested in, you know, why is it that I can't sort of rally the radical feminists on the left around sperm donation when I've been able to rally them really well around egg and surrogacy issues. Um, and then I was, I fell in love with the G transitioners. So I would love to consider some kind of a, you know, a, a real good following of a couple of those people that, um, 
did all this thinking it was going to work and help them, and it didn't. I think that's an important issue because what a lot of people don't know is that the majority of children who experience gender dysphoria, by the time they reach maturation, actually have gone back to understanding that they are the sex that they were born. And even 60 Minutes, uh, a couple months ago, did a really excellent, I thought, presentation on that. They received all kinds of grief from the uh, LGBT activist groups, but they held their ground and they presented, uh, I think it was four uh, people who had transitioned and then regretted it. And there was one young man that really was remarkable. He said that he had received three months of uh, puberty blocking and estrogen, and then he was castrated as a, as a youth. And it's just an astonishing mutilation and an astonishing abuse of that young man who's going to have to live with that for the rest of his life. So I think uh, if I may uh, give you an editorial boost, I think that's an important issue. And you're used to getting the brickbat. So there you go. Yeah. And, you know, it was funny because that 60 Minutes um, segment, which I thought was very well done, too, it just shows how... um, insane that activists are because they could not tolerate the fact that there was the, the, the mention of these detransitioners point of view. They, they could not tolerate. It's just zero toleration of a discussion or looking at a different point of view. It's, it's their way and only their way. Yeah. And, and it, and it's, uh, I've been actually surprised that YouTube has not shut down a few of your films. Yeah, Amazon pulled a few. <laughs> That's why we moved them over to YouTube. But yeah, quiet. Shh, quiet. Um, but Amazon won't, I mean, YouTube won't let us monetize them because the content's not um, too controversial for their advertisers. Well, that gets us into another topic altogether. <laughs> so anyway, so if people want to uh, contact you and the CBC, what's the best way to do that? Go to our website, cbc-network.org. And uh, I urge people to do that. There's a lot there for all of us to learn from. And uh, Jennifer, thank you for joining Humanize. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. I loved it. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work, speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos, with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Human Eyes, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.